Shalom, Mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word, means family, and we're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar, oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. I don't know if you've read that bestseller, Petrus Roman. Uh, the final pope is here, but I have one of the authors of the book, Chris Putnam, on the telephone. If you haven't heard about the Malachi prophecy, just briefly, uh, uh, Chris, I'm a, I want you to explain it. But for those that aren't familiar with you, uh, you are a, a theologian, and in particular, in grad school, uh, you studied the history of Catholic and Protestant reformers. And uh, this has all been amazing foundation for you because, yes, you're taking prophecies, but you also have it the such a strong foundation in the word uh, that that uh, it gives uh, the perspective that everyone needs. Tell us a bit about the Malachi prophecy. Well, I said it's great to be on the show with you. Uh, what we have in this Saint Malachi prophecy of the popes is a an allegedly a nine hundred year old prophecy by an Irish saint. Um, the way that the account goes, St. Malachi had made a pilgrimage to Rome to have an audience with the Pope. Now, on Genicom Hill, one of the hills outside of Rome, he had a vision. Uh, uh, from his day, 112 popes into the future, with the final Pope reigning during the Tribulation. So, the way this vision uh, came across, the way he recorded it, is a series of Latin phrases or mottos, which seem to predict something about each pope, perhaps a description of his coat of arms, or something about his name, or perhaps events that happened during his papacy. So we have this sequence of 112 mottos. Now the thing that makes this all very intriguing is that Pope Benedict was 111 out of 112, meaning that this very next pope, um, the prediction for him seems to really strongly infer the end times. It, it says, in the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will nourish the sheep in many tribulations. When they're finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. The end. So that is what this 900-year-old prophecy predicts to happen during the reign of the next Now, how did you know, because he didn't say this, or did he, uh, St. Malachi, how did you know uh, that uh, the Pope would resign so there'd be room for this last Pope? Well, Sid, you know, what? one of the things I learned, you know, in seminary is that, you know, when you're digging into a subject like this, you, you know, you go out and you read everything that you can find about it. And, uh, you know, I'm a Protestant, and I'm not necessarily predisposed to believing extra-biblical Catholic prophecies, but, you know, I wanted to, to give this thing a fair shake. And, I, and one of the books that I read about it and had to translate from French was by a Belgian Jesuit named René Thibault. Now, actually, he published this book in 1951, and he 
did all sorts of mystical calculations from the Latin text of this prophecy, and he came up with April 2012 as the date of the arrival of the final pope. Now, he didn't just do that in a trivial way. He, he actually did it from five or six different calculations. One of the simplest ones was that he calculated the average reign where a pope would be in office for 11 years. That's what he determined was the average. And then he just kind of extrapolated that forward from when he was writing in 1950, and he came up with the year 2012. Now, of course, that was very sensational with all the apocalyptic speculation about the year 2012. And, you know, we put it in our book, and there was also some rumors circling around about Benedict's health. So we kind of went out on a limb based on his writing and, and these rumors, and, and you know, we, we put on pages 57 58 of our book that we thought he would step down for health reasons. Well, you know, 2012 came and went, and we were a little disappointed and, you know, figured, well, I guess that just wasn't going to happen the way Father Tebow said. But as it turns out, when I was reading the New York Times on February 11th this year when, about Benedict's stepping down, it actually says that the decision was made in the end of March, after his trip to South America, and, quote, kept with the reserve that no one could violate, end quote. So quite literally, he made the decision to step down uh, right when this was predicted, and, and they've kept it a secret all year. Okay. From uh, looking at your book, you, you're very honest, uh, and you've done good journalism, in that a, a few of the prophecies of the popes might have been tampered with, but just a few. However, the majority, and in re, the, of recent years, of course, it was from the original prophecy. How accurate was it, in your opinion, as a, a biblical uh, scholar? Well, you know, one of the things that I looked at, you know, is that this thing was published in widely you know, spread across the continent of Europe by 1595 in a book called Ligum Vate. So no matter what people might say about it being a forgery or, or written after the fact, um, you really can't argue about the prophecies after 1595, because no one disputes that it was in print at that time. Now, you know, when you're testing something like this, the way you test a hypothesis in science is you try to falsify it. You look for a risky prediction. And one of the ones that really jumped out at me was religio de populata. Now, in the sequence of the Malachi prophecy, that was the, the prophecy that matched Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. Now, he was Pope from 1914 to 1922. And, and that prophecy actually in English would be religion depopulated. Now, that's a very risky prediction. All things being equal, you would expect the church to kind of remain the same. But what happened from 1914 to 1922? This was a time of World War I. Okay, this was devastating to Europe, devastating to the Catholic Church. To add insult to injury, this was the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, where they think that up to 200 million people left the church to join the Communist Party. And the ones that didn't, Lenin specifically targeted religious leaders. So right when this prophecy that we can prove was published hundreds of years before, said that religion was depopulated, we see probably the greatest depopulation of religion in, in history. What Tell me your sanctified speculation of what the last pope's reign will be like. Well, based on the text of this prophecy, we see it, it's talking about the city of seven hills being destroyed. 
It's talking about judgment. Now, the city of Seven Hills is a really transparent reference to the city of Rome. And, uh, you know, this is what captured my imagination. Because, like I said, I'm not necessarily predisposed to these sort of Catholic prophecies. But when I look at the book of Revelation, and it talks about the great harlot and mystery of Babylon, I mean, it really strongly connects that to the city of Rome. And and Revelation 17.9 is talking about the seven-headed beast, and it has two aspects to the heads. In the first aspect, it says the heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, at the end of Revelation 17, it says that that woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, interpreting, you know, the Bible, you know, a good general rule is you always start with the author's intention. Now, when John was writing the book of Revelation around A.D. 90, it was at the peak of the Roman Empire. Um, So a city that has dominion over the kings of the earth in the Apostle John's mind, I think, would be inarguably Rome. Absolutely. But what is your sanctified speculation that will happen when this pope rules? Well, you know, because I see this connection to biblical prophecy, um, you know, I think that it's a very good possibility, and this is what we, we argue, is that this final pope is the biblical false prophet. In Revelation chapter 13, you know, the Antichrist usually gets most of the press, but around verse 11 or so, it describes the second beast, and it says he has horns like a lamb, yet speaks like a dragon. Now, I think everyone will agree that like a lamb is, is an inference to, to Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, generally, you know, horns in, in apocalyptic literature are a sign of power, so I think that this uh, description of the false prophet is saying that he's going to be seen as a powerful Christian leader, yet he's going to be speaking like a dragon and leading the world to worship the Antichrist. Uh, so for those reasons, you know, I think worldwide, you know, people, when they think of a powerful Christian leader, invariably would, would probably answer the Pope. So that, that, that's, I see him in that role. Okay. Uh, your brand-new book, literally off the press, not available in bookstores yet, is called Exo Vaticana. What does that mean? Well, this prefix exo, you know, generally implies something otherworldly. And we have, you know, exoplanets, where they're looking at planets outside of our solar system. There's actually an area of theology now called exotheology that handles how would theologians handle an extraterrestrial reality. And the Catholics have really laid a lot of groundwork in in that uh, realm of thought, and uh, this is what our book is about. We think that uh, a a very likely component of the end-time scenario will involve a claimed extraterrestrial presence. Okay. You will not understand end times without these two books that document secret files in the Vatican Library and belief in aliens. Petrus Romanus, the last pope, hidden in the Vatican libraries over 900 years ago, a vision of the next 112 popes, stunning accuracy of the first 111. Now, this last pope will take office for the final judgment. The second book, Exo Vaticana, documents the Vatican's plan for arrival of an alien god with a small g, secret files in the Vatican Library on the reality of alien presence. 
Vatican's position on extraterrestrials, Vatican's Project Lucifer, why 2013 is the year top astronomers say the aliens will be revealed, the breeding and hybridization program for humans and aliens. Both books available for a donation of $35. The second book is only available through our ministry. I'm interrupting this telecast with a special announcement. We have a new pope, St. Francis. According to the Malachi prophecy, he had to be a Roman. Did you know that this new pope's parents were from Italy, Roman? Not only that, he's the first Jesuit to ever be pope. And as you've just heard, the Jesuits are involved with the aliens. Call our order-only line, one 800 447 2697. 1 800 447 2697. Experts in Bible prophecy over a hundred years ago saw what would be going on today in our culture, which is setting the stage for the book that you've just written. What did they see? Well, Sid, you know, what, what I was referring to is. Uh, George Hawkins Pember, who was a, a theologian in England around the turn of the century, uh, he wrote a book called Earth's Earliest Ages and their connection with modern spiritualism and theosophy. And, you know, what he was looking at was Jesus made this reference to, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, he, he pulled out, you know, just the seven points where... He saw parallels between the antediluvian, meaning the pre-flood civilization, and you know the culture that he was living in, you know, at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. Now, you know, in, in the emphasis, you know, if you look at Jesus's teaching in, in that passage, is you know, he's really saying that that people are just oblivious, that the majority of the population is just not paying attention to the signs. And, and, you know, Noah, it says in the book of Hebrews that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You know, the people ignored Noah, and I can imagine that they, they ridiculed him for, for building an ark. Yeah, you know, when I think about that, uh, of it would be like the days of Noah in the last days, I, I think about uh, morality just sinking to no zero level. Uh, that's what most people think about, but there's a lot more to it, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So, the seven parallels that, that Pember uh, commented on were an overemphasis of God's mercy at the expense of holiness. Um, oh boy, that sounds like the popular grace message today, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole movement of pluralism, you know, believing that all religions lead to God, you know, that all religions are somehow correct. Um, you know, the expense of his holiness, you know, people don't want to hear a convicting message about sin. People don't want to believe in a literal place called hell. Um, Uh, You know, it's gone to extremes. Uh, There was a time when holiness was preached, and today they say, well, so many people are turned off that we want to just do the positives rather than the negatives, and a generation is being raised without understanding, without holiness. You will not see God. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the gospel is unintelligible without a coming to the end of yourself, you know, uh, uh, without a, an admission that you're fallen and sinful. 
You know, without that, it's not really even coherent to have a savior. You know, you have to be saved from something for that to be, you know, an intelligible concept. Uh, what were the other uh, points that he raised? Well, the second one was a disregard for gender roles and contempt for marriage. Now, you know, he was commenting on this, you know, at the dawn of the 20th century. I don't think he would ever even imagined, you know, the fact that we're starting to legislate um, homosexual unions and, and people are calling that marriage. Listen, in my lifetime, I can't imagine the change that has occurred so quickly. I, I mean, uh, morality is there is none today, and it's getting worse. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the the whole idea of relativism has so infiltrated the culture. Uh, now, what does that mean, relative? Well, it's Listen. this idea that that morality is really just dependent on your opinion or your own feelings. You hear the sort of nonsense like, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. You know, people have just, that's just completely um, incoherent to even to think that way because you know, there is an absolute truth, which is what matches reality. It's not an opinion. And, you know, I think that you know, people have abandoned this in this in this sphere of morality, but I mean, there really are things that are good and evil. Yeah, you know, it goes back to Pontius Pilate's question to Jesus: "What is truth? Either there's absolutes or there aren't. If there's not absolutes, believe anything you want." What were some of the other points? Well, interestingly, his third point was how technology and entertainment entice man away from worshiping God. Again, you know, writing at the dawn of the 20th century, how, you know, how much more so today when we have the internet and just such a proliferation of mass media that it's hard to even keep track of it all. I mean, I go into restaurants and I don't see people talking to each other anymore. Uh, They've got their cell phones out or their iPads uh, and and they don't even need someone at the table. (laughs) Right. And, you know, the the thing that we have done that is really dangerous is that we've embraced progress. We've made an idol of progress. And we've defined progress as increased efficiency and convenience. Now, you know, those are the idols of America. And we don't really consider when we adopt a new technology, you don't just get the culture that you have plus the new technology, the new technology radically changes the culture. And, it, you know, it destroys what was there before. I mean, in a very real way, I mean, things like texting and that we're doing now are deconstructing the English language. And, you know, it's really nothing we can do about it. Once this sort of thing is in motion, it's pretty much a done deal. Oh, what other things did he predict? Well, five was a vast population increase. Um, and, you know, that is way beyond the sphere that anything that he was imagining. Um, you know, and that is a, uh, it's an issue for, uh, for missions and world evangelism as well, because, you know, you have such a population increase in some of these third world areas that it's hard to keep up, uh, especially with the unreached people groups. So the sixth is the rejection of the prophetic warnings and preaching. Um, and that's the most pertinent really to our discussion is that, you know, there's so many signs. People that are, you know, that are familiar with Bible prophecy see what's going on in Israel. I mean, things like the Arab Spring. You know, we there's so many signs that um, you know it's almost overwhelming. I mean, the general uh, you know feeling in the prophetic community is that things are right on the edge. Now, the seventh 
uh, idea that ever put forth was, I'll quote, the appearance upon earth of beings from the principality of the air and their unlawful intercourse with the human race, end quote. Now, when he's talking about the principality of the air, that's a reference to Ephesians chapter 2, where the devil is referred to as the prince of the principality of the air. Now, what's really interesting about that is that the New Testament worldview, the realm of the demons is really the atmosphere between the earth and actually the moon is the way they really thought of it. So when we're dealing with the subject of, of unidentified aerial phenomenon and UFOs and these sorts of experiences that people are having, um, it's not really a stretch to posit these as demonic manifestations because the realm of demons in the New Testament worldview is the sky. You, you know what you're saying reminds me of the wheat and the tares, uh, the, the uh, parable and Jesus said, let the tares grow up. So you, what I'm hearing you say is that when we read the story about the ancient Nephilim, uh, where the sons of God cohabited with the, uh, with the human women, that that's coming back. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that there's a lot of really compelling evidence that points to something like that going on. I mean, in, in the study of, of UFOs, there's several uh, big-name scholars who have studied the abduction phenomenon and determined that it's real. Now, one is Dr. John Mack, who was a Harvard psychiatrist who wrote two you know, very large volumes on the abduction phenomenon. Now, Dr. Mack risked his career in academia to, to write this book on abduction and, and come out and say that he believed that it absolutely something real was going on and that you know, it wasn't you know, a mental illness or insanity that something was happening to these people. Um, he really inferred strongly that it was largely a spiritual type of phenomenon. All right. If the abductions are predominantly spiritual, are you talking about God or are you talking about the devil? Well, you know, what we see in the abduction phenomenon is characteristically evil. Tell me, uh, Chris, about Project Lucifer. Well, what the, where the name Lucifer comes from in, in the association with the observatory complex on Mount Graham. And now, where's Mount Graham? Okay, in Arizona. This is where the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope is. It's outside of Tucson. Um, this came from a uh, project by the University of Arizona where they have a conglomerate of the Vatican, uh, various United States uh, universities like Notre Dame um, and the University of Arizona. And then we have a whole uh, cadre of Germans, the Max Planck Institute, the Institute in Heidelberg. Um, so these people have all come together to build this observatory complex. Now, the first uh, telescope to appear up on Mount Graham was the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope. Now, the Lucifer device is actually an infrared camera that's attached to the large binocular telescope, which is just a few hundred yards from the Vatican's facility. Now, this is the most powerful telescope in the world. I mean, they actually say that it gets clearer images than the Hubble Space Telescope. 
That's because the University of Arizona pioneered a new mirror technology, and the size of the mirror is really the, the function of the power in telescopes. Now, the Lucifer device, like I said, is an infrared camera, and it's really useful in looking for exoplanets, planets with Earth-like conditions where they think that they might find extraterrestrial life. Now, why did they name it Lucifer is, is beyond me. It really looks like they went to extravagant lengths to kind of force it to, to be, you know, the diabolical name of Lucifer. I mean, it, it's an acronym. It stands for the Large Binocular Telescope Near-Infrared Spectroscopic Utility with Camera and Integral Field Unit for Extragalactic Research. Now, that's quite a stretch. You know, there's, there was a reporter that, that called them, and, you know, at first they, they denied that it was associated with the devil. I mean, the name Lucifer is, is drawn from Isaiah 14, where, you know, with that famous passage where it, it seems to talk about the fall of the archangel who, you know, tries to exalt himself above God. Now, you know, the, the Germans at first said, well, you know, that's really about the king of Babylon. It's really not about the devil. So we're not, we're not naming it after the devil. But then they contradicted themselves. In the very next sentence, they said that there's a German politician whose name is Teufel, and that's actually the German word for devil, and he was instrumental in, in getting the funding for them to uh, build this thing. So they wanted to honor him by, by naming it after his last name, which, which is the German word for devil. So okay, what? why should we be concerned about this project? You know, it, it begs the question, what is the Vatican doing with an observatory that's looking for exoplanets? Why is the Vatican involved in astrobiology? They had an astrobiology conference in Rome in 2009 and invited the top secular scientists in the world. We're talking, you know, about atheists and, and you know, evolutionists who really believe that life is just an accident that happens by chance. And because there's so many other planets out in the universe, it just the law of averages means it'll happen somewhere else as well. And, and the Vatican is intimately wrapped up in this. Uh, okay, so if they believe that uh, life happened by chance, then that discounts the validity of the creation story from the Bible. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And, uh, you know, I take them to task in the book Exa Vaticana, um, especially these Jesuit scientists, you know, said, I don't see any difference in the sort of things that they are saying, you know, when it comes to Darwinism and, and these issues of the origin of life and the sorts of things that someone like Richard Dawkins, you know, the famous atheist says. They really have adopted this idea that, that life uh, just evolved, you know, from pond scum and, you know, the fact that the Earth is not a very special place means that they can just sort of extrapolate that to have happened over and over again out in the universe. So extraterrestrials are really just a, an unavoidable part of their worldview. Now, paint me a little picture based on your research, uh, because uh, this sounds so ominous uh, about uh, the Catholic Church may actually get into extraterrestrial evangelism? Yeah, you know, it's it's so odd that you would think that, you know, it was almost a joke 
but they're absolutely serious. You know, one of the things that I would challenge your listeners to do is just go to your computer and type extraterrestrial and baptize into a search engine and hit search and see what pops up. What you're going to discover is thousands of hits uh, of articles mainly interviewing these Vatican astronomers, these Jesuits, who have made all sorts of comments about baptizing extraterrestrials into the Catholic Church. Now, all of that started back in 1992, just about a month before the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope uh, went into operation on top of Mount Graham. The leader of the Vatican Observatory Research Group, the acronym is VORG, George Cornier actually gave a bunch of interviews to the press, and at that time, he absolutely said that the Vatican was teaming up with NASA to search for extraterrestrials and then baptizing them into the Catholic Church. Now, he made these statements, and they were reported in mainstream newspapers and in articles online, and, and they weren't—it doesn't seem tongue-in-cheek at all. In fact, he, he seemed very serious. Well, where is this leading? Well, Sid, you know, we don't believe that what is going on has anything to do with actual extraterrestrials. We don't think that entities that people are coming in contact with are space aliens. We, we really believe that this is leading to what the Bible says is the strong delusion. We think that these are evil supernatural entities, fallen angels that are deceiving the world. Um, I think that you know, the worldview that's associated with evolution and Darwinism and this idea that life is nothing special is, you know, intentionally designed to undermine the biblical worldview. It's intentionally designed to undermine the gospel. And uh, I think that what's going on is that strong delusion that we see predicted in biblical prophecy. Now, let's, let's go back to what the Bible talks about, these Nephilim, because that's what you're talking about. Uh, tell me about that. Well, in Genesis 6, it does talk about these entities known as the Nephilim. Now, it's my belief that that term Nephilim is based on an Aramaic word that means giants. And, and that interpretation is kind of borne out by, by the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint. It actually uses the term gigantes. And when you look in, you know, Numbers chapter 13, it talks about that, you know, that the Israelites thought that they were grasshoppers in the sight of these huge beings. So it really does seem that these fallen angels are able to manifest bodies and to procreate with human women to create a hybrid offspring that is quite a bit larger than a normal human being. And, and that really does seem to be the meaning of the text. What biblical evidence is there that the Nephilim will reemerge in the last days? I think the, uh, the principal starting point is Jesus's inference that as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. You know, when we think of the days of Noah, well, that's Genesis chapter 6. And, you know, that's where this passage about the Nephilim uh, is found. So, you know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to associate the days of Noah with these hybrid offspring. With the evidence that we see coming from the UFO abduction phenomenon, it, it does seem that the same sort of thing is going on today. 
speak a little bit about uh, your chapter on the return of hybrid humans. What does that mean? Well, in the Nephilim are described as hybrids between angelic or these sons of God, the Elohim, which uh, are spiritual beings, uh, which also seem to manifest bodies. So the Nephilim are hybrids. Uh, and then, you know, the, the sort of literature that scholars in the UFO community, like David Jacobs, who is a Ph.D. historian at Temple University, had read, wrote a book called The Threat, where he absolutely believes that these alien entities are collecting human DNA for the purpose of a hybrid program to integrate themselves into our world. You know, it's kind of interesting that Hollywood has a lot of movies about these things and TV. Uh, it seems to be very popular now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I wrote about what I call the UFO mythos, meaning that there's a mythology that's associated with aliens and UFOs that, that's really, you know, predominant in the culture. A lot of people... Well, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I can't wait for you to read these two books we're making available. It's a whole new paradigm for end times. They document the secret files in the Vatican Library and the belief that the Vatican says there are aliens from outer space. Petrus Romanus, the last pope, hidden deep in the Vatican libraries 900 years ago, there was a vision of the next 112 popes. Stunning accuracy of the first 111. Now, this last pope will take office for the final judgment. The second book, Exo Vaticana, and I might add, it's not available in bookstores. We have an exclusive on this for a while documents Vatican plans for the arrival of an alien god with a small g from another planet and complete reevaluation of Christianity. This is such a plausible view of the Antichrist coming in the clouds to deceive the masses. Both books available for a gift of $35. I'm interrupting this telecast with a special announcement. We have a new pope St. Francis. According to the Malachi prophecy, he had to be a Roman. Did you know that this new pope's parents were from Italy, Roman? Not only that, he's the first Jesuit to ever be pope. And as you've just heard, the Jesuits are involved with the aliens. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. Why did you jump, Tom, from uh, the book about the final pope to uh, a book about extraterrestrial uh, things that the Catholic Church are involved in? What's the connection? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, we, well, uh, we had, uh, last year we were doing shows on Petrus Romanus. We were making spectacular predictions based on all of our research. We actually went out on a limb and said Pope Benedict would not die in his office, but in fact he would abdicate the throne and he would cite health reasons for doing so. And we even gave the dates, and we turned out to be extraordinarily correct, which of course then has kept our phone ringing off the hook. But what a lot of people don't know is that when we were doing shows on Petrus Romanus last year, 
uh, several times we did shows in which the question also came up of the Vat- what people call the Vatican ET connection. You know, why have leaders of the Vatican been out there talking about uh, better, you know, chances being better than not that uh, official disclosure of intelligent alien life is going to be made in the very near future? And then it also seemed like they were accommodating some of their theology to be able to embrace that reality. Uh, and so anytime we would bring that up, those shows would rocket to be the top shows in the world. We did one on blog talk radio with uh, a friend of mine, and we only talked about Petrus. That became the number one show in the world for one week. I came back a couple of weeks later, and we did a show on the Vatican ET connection, also tying it into some of these prophecies, and that became the number one talk show uh, in the world for six weeks. And so what we started realizing is that what we had really only considered in the first book to just be a nominal issue, uh, the public was connecting with it uh, in a way that they seemed to understand or they were more interested in. Uh, the, the, the prophecy of the popes itself was maybe a, a bit more complex than the average individual could wrap their mind around or care about. But the idea, you know, that the Vatican spokesperson were out there saying official disclosure is coming soon and it's going to dramatically impact Christianity as we know it. Now, this is something people around the world could really kind of, you know, become alert to and wanted to know about. And so it just seemed the right thing to do, that we had to take the next step and do a thorough investigation. And the new book, Exo Vaticana, is actually even larger. It's over 600 pages in a six-by-nine trim with almost a 1,000 authoritative endnotes. I think that when people find out your background— they're going to understand why God has handpicked you to be involved in this project. Now, you have been an Assembly of God uh, uh, pastor for over 25 years. Uh, tell me a bit about a year after you came to the Lord, what happened to you? Well, this truly was a supernatural event. Um, and you know, I was a very young Christian. I was so sincerely seeking the Lord, Sid. I mean, I would I would go to work, and I did my job like I was supposed to do. But, you know, I was in the union, so we got breaks every two hours. We got a 15-minute break. And every time I got a break, I would be in the back room of this building in the dark on my knees, just seeking God so passionately, wanting to be used by God. And one night, something very supernatural did, in fact, uh, occur in that uh, I went to bed with my wife. The next thing I know, I'm standing in front of just what is brilliant, just, just this brilliant light that I can't even explain. I can't say that I saw a form or an outline or something like that, but what I knew in my mind was that I was standing before the throne of God. And he had told me something. The Lord had told me something. But now he had said, it is time now for you to return, and you won't remember what I've told you. Well, my rational mind kicked in, right? <laughs> and I started saying, but Lord, wait a minute. This is too great. This is too wonderful. Please don't let me forget. And I started dropping. I started falling backwards. And this was very, very real to me. At that moment, this was happening. And I could see heaven kind of departing very quickly as if you had fallen out of an airplane and you were following with your face up towards the sky. It was all moving away from me very quickly. And all of a sudden I saw the roof of my house go around me. I just went through it and it went around me and I hit the bed. And at that moment, Sid, I, I breathed in very deeply. I went, oh, and I literally sat up in bed. 
now I was awake. I was really awake, and I was sitting there, and I heard my wife just bawling her eyes out. And I turned and I looked, and here was my wife, Nita, sitting in the bed next to me, and she was just crying and crying. And I, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And as the moments unfolded, she explained to me, that she had woke up in the middle of the night, and I was dead as a doornail. I had no breath. I had no pulse. In fact, my body was already cold, and she was shaking me and beating on me. And this went on for maybe 10 minutes. I was completely unaware that it was even happening, so I was quite literally dead. And uh, she was beating on my chest. She finally gave up. She was just about to crawl out of bed and dial 911 and tell her tell everybody that her husband died when suddenly I woke up and I came out of it, and my heart started beating again. Nothing like like that has ever happened since that time. And I've always known, Sid, that the Lord allowed that to happen for my wife to wake up and find me in that condition so that I would never doubt the fact that this was a supernatural event. Otherwise, you know how it is. Time goes by, and after a while, the enemy comes in, and he starts telling you, well, it was just you ate too many chili beans or something. You know, it wasn't real. But the Lord allowed her to find me in that condition, and for so many minutes that it was beyond um, the fact that it could have been coincidental. But then what happened was I went to my pastor, and uh, he really kind of – well, first of all, he didn't know how to deal with it. I, I was looking for an answer. My question was this. Why in the world if – if this came from God, and I believe it did, why would God – tell me anything, and then allow me to forget it. That just didn't make any sense, right? And um, so my pastor didn't get it either. And But I happened to be reading through the Bible. This was the first time in my life. I was a young Christian. I was reading through the Bible, and I happened to be in the book of Job, when all of a sudden my eyes fell on this place in Job where it says, in the nighttime, in deep sleep, in slumberings upon the bed, then God seals the instructions of the righteous within them to hide pride from man. And I saw that verse, and I mean, here, I'm a young Christian. I don't know anything really about theology, but the light just went on that whatever this was, God had sealed these instructions within me. And when the times were right, down through life, if I continued to commit myself to the Lord, whenever I was sincerely seeking whether I should go left, whether I should go right, what should I do, God had sealed this information within me, and when the time was right, he would let me know. Now, that little part on the end that says to hide pride from man, I really got that later in life. That is, as a very young believer, I would have made two mistakes if I had known where God was going to take me. First of all, if I had known I was going to pastor you know, very large churches, actually, for 25 years, be an executive in a, the largest evangelical institution in the world, see myself on television and preaching and going to these large conferences and speaking. If I had saw that as a young Christian, two mistakes. One, I certainly could have been lifted up with pride, and that's what that text says. That he does that to hide pride from man, to keep us from our errors. And secondly, I would have just made a beeline toward the end game. I mean, I would have just aimed right at whatever I thought God wanted me to do, and I would not have gone through all those very important lessons, the hard lessons and the good lessons that you learn that temper your steel, your metal as a believer. And and let me tell you, you have to have your metal tempered with what you're tackling right now. I mean, I don't think you realize how huge this is, this exo-Vaticana. But I also see uh, that you had some personal uh, stories with relatives having to do with aliens. Yeah, and in fact, you know, for the first time 
in this book, Exo Vaticana, I am telling a very large part of one of the biggest secrets uh, that has to do with part of my family. It's a secret. I've kept it buried my entire adult life. It's remained sealed um, partly due to actually a binding agreement, a settlement between members of my family, state authorities, and federal investigators. And part of this has to do with a family member who was a nuclear physicist with the uppermost security clearance doing research in a nuclear and biological warfare at General Atomics in San Diego, California. And at one point, uh, he uh, was transferred from General Atomics to Los Alamos National Laboratory in northern New Mexico, where he was involved with a top-secret project, uh, the details of which my family was oblivious to. Of course, that's the same facility that was founded during World War II as a covert laboratory to coordinate the Manhattan Project, right? The, the Allied undertaking to uh, develop the first nuclear weapons. But sinisterly, it's also been connected to an alleged secret alien underground facility beneath the Archuleta Mesa on the New Mexico border near, near uh, Dulce. Uh, it's been connected to genetic experiments on humans, UFOs, uh, even the claim that five alien bodies, extraterrestrial biological entities, had been recovered from 1947 at the Roswell crash site and then sent to a safe house there at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. So it has all that history. But it was during that time... While he was uh, conducting top-secret research with the U.S. government at Los Alamos, that one night he came home. Now, at that time, you have to realize that none of these people were living Christian lives. I was the only one at that time in my family that was a Christian. And he came home, and under the influence of alcohol, he stated that the laboratory where he was working was involved with the so-called alien agenda. My guest, Tom Horn, is co-author of the best-selling book uh, that uh, many of you have been talking about called Petrus Romanus. It's The Final Pope is Here. Uh, and uh, you, you made headlines, literally, Tom, when you predicted uh, that the pope would resign and the next pope would be the final pope. Um, but before we get to some of your amazing background that God had to prepare you for this project— Briefly, describe why every Christian in the world must read Exo Vaticana. Well, every person in the world should read Exo Vaticana for one reason, and I don't mean this as uh, to brag. Uh, we were the ones who correctly predicted that Pope Benedict uh, XVI would step down, and we explained why he would the first pope to do so in over 600 years. And in fact, Sid, we found out that we were more accurate than we had even uh, thought that we would be. In last year's book, Petrus Romanus, which is picked up in this new book, Exo Vaticana, and by the way, Exo Vaticana is actually over 600 pages long, but the subject matter that we have been talking about, we had predicted, first of all, in the book last year, that Pope Benedict would step down in either March or April of 2012. Later in that work, we, we said, if he doesn't step down in March or April, he will before the end of 2013. Now, we found out that we were accurate in, in both cases, which is astonishing, right? Uh, we found out that uh, in uh, February uh, the 11th, the New York Times, right after the Pope stepped down, they interviewed Giovanni Mario uh, Vian. Now, that is the Vatican's 
spokesperson for the El Observatorio Romano, which is their official media mouthpiece. And in that article, and people can look this up, it's the, fit, it's the New York Times article, A Statement Rocks Rome, if they want to Google it and read it for themselves, uh, they admitted that Pope Benedict actually stepped down at the end of March 2012. He did so privately. He did so with a half dozen cardinals. And in fact, they said that his decision to step down then was held in what they call, quote, a reserve that no one could violate, end quote. So they couldn't even be shared among the, among the courier and among the other cardinals who would form the conclave. And immediately in April, they started remodeling a building that the nuns had been using there at the Vatican that would then serve as an apartment that the Pope would retire in. So he actually re- resigned officially right when we said he would, but then he didn't, he didn't make it uh, publicly official until this year uh, in, in February of 2013, which was also what we said he would do. So, but the point about that is, if this incredible research, and it wasn't just Tom Horn and Chris Putnam, I had a team, I hired a private investigator, we spent uh, over a year researching the material that would go into this book. We, we had probably 20,000 pages or more of documents, and this was, a, this was a tremendous research project, and we wanted to make sure that we covered our trail, because if you're going to predict something that hasn't happened you know, in 600 years, uh, you probably ought to have good reasons for making such a spectacular decision. Well, if we were right about that, people are going to be blown away about what we're saying in Exo Vaticana. Uh, the bottom line is there certainly are, from the horse's mouth, I mean, there are documents that were provided to us by leading astronomers and academics from the Vatican who were willing to talk to us over five times. We interviewed from Rome the Vatican's top astronomer, Guy uh, Cosmonalgo, and from their own mouths and the documents they sent us, they definitely are preparing for the arrival of an alien intelligence, and they definitely believe that this is going to require a change to the gospel as we've understood it until now. As a matter of fact, they believe that these intelligences are superior to us morally. They'll be coming here to evangelize us, and in fact, that to not believe in their message will be the real heresy. So this is a gigantic setup for what we believe to be an end times deception. Well, it's a perfect scenario for the the one world religion. I I mean, what if, I mean, I I can just paint the picture. Uh, The world is in a catastrophic position. The economies are reeling. National disasters are going on uh, in in countries all over the world. The the economy is falling apart. There's shortages of food. There's wars going on. I can paint that picture, and all of a sudden, uh, what do you think the Catholic position will be uh, when some alien comes in and says, I can help you, I can solve everything? Well, that's absolutely right. And uh, as a matter of fact, anybody who reads this book, who reads the documents that we are providing uh, in the book, um, in this, and in fact, I should also let audiences know that that your ministry, Sid Roth, it's supernatural, basically have a world exclusive on having the first release of this book before anybody else will be able to get it in their hands. But smack dab in the middle of this whole conspiracy isn't just—they're going to find it's not just NASA, it's not just aeronautic and space administrations like the European Space Agency, uh, some of whom are saying that official disclosure is going to be made in the year 2013. They're going to find right in the middle of 
that the Vatican. And in many ways, that makes perfect sense. The scenario you just described, official disclosure of extraterrestrial intelligence, habitable alien world, suddenly some intergalactic messiah appears to solve all of our problems, and it's going to be warmly embraced uh, by the world. And they, they will be in the middle of it because, as the most powerful church on earth. It has its own diplomatic corps of ambassadors posted throughout the industrialized nations of the world. The Vatican is uniquely positioned and has been actively preparing, as we show in this book, for this moment. They have put themselves intentionally in the position to be the benefactors of an alien invasion. But, you know, simultaneous with this, uh, it seems as though the scriptures are being devalued. It's not being authentic. In fact, many of the Jesuit scientists don't even believe in the scriptures anymore. Yeah, that's right. And as a matter of fact, the, the book starts out with Chris Putnam and I going to the Vatican Astronomical Technology Telescope in Mount Graham in southeastern Arizona to ask the Jesuit astronomers why. Uh, what, you know, why they've been carefully releasing to media in recent years these captivating comments uh, having to do with an alien uh, intelligence and why they believe that that is going to so dramatically force, really, upon us a reevaluation of Christianity as we have understood it. Now, tell me some of their responses to that. Guy Cosmonalgo is a leading astronomer. He often turns up in media as a spokesman for the Vatican. Uh, he's worked at NASA. Uh, he's taught at Harvard. He's taught at MIT. And right now, he splits his time between the Vatican Observatory Laboratory, what's called the Specola Vaticana, which is headquartered at the summer residence of the Pope in Castel Gandolfo, Italy. He splits his time between there and Mount Graham uh, in uh, Arizona. But he is one, and, he, and we, we interviewed him five times. He's one that's focused so much time and effort uh, in recent years to reconcile science and religion in public forums specifically as it relates to the subject of extraterrestrial life and its impact on the future of faith as we have known it, that he was specifically a person that we targeted. By the way, once he knew who we were and what we were really doing, then he still kept talking to us, but his answers became really short, if not altogether evasive. But on the upside, he was gracious enough to send us um, a copy of a private PDF, which is a goldmine of what he and the Vatican are considering regarding the ramifications of ET. And in that, what he says, to answer your question, is that, first of all, the, the Bible is not contrary to the idea of extraterrestrial intelligence. Then, to illustrate the soundness of that possibility, he argues that uh, humans are not the only intelligent beings in the universe and that this is proved by the Bible. And then he astonished us by making his theological argument by pointing to uh, the angels that fell and created the Nephilim of, the, of Genesis chapter 6. He actually goes through and details how they came down and what they did. And then, he in, and then he ends it saying, if you interpreted those creatures as angels, aliens, whatever you want, it doesn't really matter for the sake of the argument. The point is that ancient writers of the Bible, like all the ancient people, were perfectly happy with the possibility that other intelligent beings could exist that could be morally superior to us who could also revisit the earth again in the near future. And I, I emailed him back and I said, well, now, think about what you're saying. I mean, do you, do you actually mean to use the story of, of the Nephilim 
from the Bible as an example of the kind of space saviors that you're looking for to come for our salvation. This just seems incredible to me. And yet when people read Exo Vaticana, they'll, they'll find that it's, it, it is substantiated over and over again by some of the, uh, the leaders. He also, by the way, quoted to John 10:16 that says another sheep have I have which are not of this fold them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and be one fold and be one shepherd and he said perhaps it's not so far fetched to see the second person of the trinity now get this I'm quoting him now he writes to me perhaps it's not so far fetched to see the second person of the trinity the word who was present in the beginning, John 1, 1, coming to lay down his life and take it up again, not only as the son of man, but also as a child of these other races, end quote. That's an end quote. Hmm. So again, I emailed him back and I said, really? Vatican scholars believe that Jesus might have been the star child of an alien race? I mean, do, do, do the Jesuits really hold that the virgin birth was in reality an alien abduction scenario in which Mary was impregnated by E.T. giving birth to a hybrid Jesus. So it's amazing. Now, I should tell you, I also have had Catholics who have heard us on radio and television talking about some of this stuff over the last year that have emailed me and said, you know, these Jesuits absolutely do not reflect our true faith. I mean, these guys are utter heretics. Well, if that's the truth, then, then what difference does it make? Well, the difference that it makes is they're the ones who write the rules. The right now, there's Opus Dei level uh, theologians who are writing the rules, who are writing the theology for Rome that will be in. Whoops, we're at, we're out of time. We're going to pick this up that right here next week. You can't possibly understand end times without these two books. They document secret files in the Vatican Library and belief in aliens. Petrus Romanus, The Last Pope, is the first book. The second book, literally, just off the press, not available in bookstores exclusively with our ministry, is called Exo Vaticano. It documents the Vatican plans for arrival of an alien god with a small g from another planet and complete reevaluation of Christianity from the Vatican. Both books available for a gift of $35. I'm interrupting this telecast with a special announcement. We have a new pope, St. Francis. According to the Malachi prophecy, he had to be a Roman. Did you know that this new pope's parents were from Italy? Roman. Not only that, he's the first Jesuit to ever be Pope. And as you've just heard, the Jesuits are involved with the aliens. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D. 
R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.